Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Weird. I am your host, Dan. I'm your other host, Riley. And joining us yet again is our beloved and beleaguered producer, Bonnie. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. Is it, though, Bonnie? Always. Always good. So we mentioned this in last week's podcast, Riley, that this is our 10th episode. We did it. The Vegas odds, I don't know if either of you know this, the Vegas odds had us at four shows max. So we, yes. Are you serious? Lots lots of people have had their savings destroyed based on our success. I lost a lot of money. Bonnie was, you lost like $50,000 on, because this show has been successful. Exactly. Well, did you, did you know the Vegas odds said I wouldn't live to see 28 and here I am. Well, there's a theory out there that you did pass away at 28 and that is the topic for this week's episode. Is Riley really a spectral entity? If you listen to a song on one of the OMD albums backwards, it tells you that Riley is dead. Absolutely. And have been so since I was 28. Yeah. That's why you never see me eating. If you listen to How Bizarre on OMC's album, I think it's called How Bizarre. This is so eerie. If you play it backwards, it's the exact same song. Is that that stupid fucking song from the 90s? How Bizarre, How Bizarre. Yeah. Drove up to my Chevy and the clown played the guitar and the robot said, hum, how bizarre. Fuck, I hated that song. They're known as a one-hit wonder. I saw them on a one-hit wonder show. Yes, absolutely a one-hit wonder. All right. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a big one and I want to dive right into it. I am also, last week you had mentioned to our listeners that it could be a bit graphic and it, and it was. It was quite sad, by the way, that episode. This is similar. Some of the things that I'm going to be talking about are gruesome. I think they're important and pertinent to the story and understanding sort of what happened. However, that being said, a lot of people probably have already heard of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Riley, Bonnie, have you heard of it before? Absolutely. I had not, to be honest. And I noticed that one of our followers on Facebook actually mentioned it would be a good topic to do. But you had already decided you were going to do that. Yeah, this is known as one of the world's greatest uh, mysterious disappearance cases. And very complex. There's, uh, similar to your story last week, lots of moving pieces. You really have to pay attention because every detail to this story that we have matters, I think, in trying to understand what exactly happened. Well, do you know the story that I told last week, the Yuba County Five? Did you know that that is commonly referred to as the American Dyatlov? Right. Yeah, and it, and I think you'll you'll see in a moment here that there are a lot of similarities between these two stories. I'm ready. Let's let's start. I'll, I'll provide you with some background to the story. Super dupes. In 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in Sverdlovsk Oblast, Soviet Union. I remember that that was a zone on the risk board, and no one knew how to pronounce it. Sverdlovsk. No, Urals. 
Oh, Urals. Oh. It was on the Risk board. Don't didn't you ever play didn't you ever play Risk? You'd play Risk was one of those games that you played with your family and by the end everyone hated each other. <laughs> I I love that old Seinfeld episode where Kramer and Newman play and they have to bring the board to Jerry's apartment because it's neutral territory and they're not and they don't they feel that it's safe to leave the game there because it can take several hours to play the game. Oh, it's a long game. And then they bring it they bring it onto the subway and there's someone from the Ukraine on the subway and he gets upset because I think Newman says that the Ukraine's useless and worthless and who cares what the Ukraine <laughs> and the man ended up smashing the whole board. Anyway, I digress. That being said, I'm glad you mentioned uh, my pronunciation of the Urals or Urals. I'm going to probably be mispronouncing some of the names here. I'm going to do the best I can to pronounce them correctly. Please forgive me. I'm not Russian. I don't speak Russian. The expedition was apparently commemorated to the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And possibly the expedition was dispatched by the local Komsomol organization, so local government. This was the Soviet Union. It's uh, you know still at a time where people are... The exact opposite of free. This wasn't just a, a group of people deciding to go on a hike. You had to have approval from the government. The government had to know what you were doing, why you were doing it, where you were going, etc. And it was approved. Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, was the leader who assembled a group of nine others for the trip, most of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. Each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and two women, Igor, uh, another gentleman named Yuri Doroshenko, Ludmila Dubinia, Georgi Kravashenko, Alexander Kolvatov, Zaneda Komogorova, Rustam Slobodin, Nikolai Tibo Brignol, Alexander Zolotaryov, and Yuri Yudin. Each person in that group was an experienced grade two hiker with ski tour experience and after this would be receiving their grade three certification upon their return. At that time, that was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 300 kilometers or 190 miles. Sort of like getting your pilot's license. You had to go a certain distance. This, this wasn't weekend warriors. This was some of the most experienced hikers in the, in the, in the regime and the country it really knew what they were doing. In fact, you know, in many instances, they would be the experts that other people would rely on to survive or to learn from. The route was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission of the Sverdlovsk Committee of Physical Culture and Sport on the 8th of January, 1959. The goal of the expedition was to reach Gora or Torten, a mountain 10 kilometers or 6.2 miles north of the site of the incident. This route in February was estimated as a Category 3 or the most difficult possible route that you could go on. Uh which they kind of wanted to do, right? This is where they were at in their journey. They wanted to push themselves. It was a learning opportunity as well. They'd be exposed to a lot of different elements by choosing this route. On the 23rd of January, 1959, the Dyatlov group was issued the route book number five by the Sverdlov City Committee of Physical Culture and Sport, and it listed 11 people. This is a little weird piece here that... I'll get into a little bit later. 
I sometimes wonder if this, and it's often overlooked as a possible theory, but this 11th person, I wonder if it has something to do with why they went missing. Under number 11 was listed a Semyon Zolotaryov, who, is pr- who previously was certified to go with another expedition of similar category of difficulty, the Sogren Expedition Group. On the same day after receiving the route book, the Dyatlov Group left Sverdlovsk, which is now known as Yekaterinburg, on its expedition. So this person is inserted right before they leave Okay, so on the 27th of January, they began their trek toward Gora or Torton from Vishai. On the 28th of January, one of their members, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from several health ailments, including rheumatism and a heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. The remaining group of nine people continued the trek. Why did Yuri go in the first place? He was a very experienced, you know, and I was thinking the same thing. Why did he go? He was an he was a, a very experienced hiker, but he had a heart condition. I live with Crohn's disease, and there were many times where I've pushed myself to do things. Maybe that you would think, "Why are you doing that?" You know, you think of people like Terry Fox, who has cancer, who doesn't want to let their disease define their life. I'm assuming that Yuri was in that category. He was good at it. He wanted to try, obviously couldn't, and had to turn back. Now you made me feel bad. You're a jerk. No, it's a, but it's a, I, of course, that's, we all had that. I had that same, why would you, um, it's surprising too, that he was a part of that group, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that he has good days and bad days. And that was turned out to be a bad day. Bonnie, you're a big ABBA fan. Remember knowing me, knowing you, the good days, the bad days that just came into my head. Uh huh. Well, it's funny because ABBA plays a prominent role in this story. Did you guys hear? Did you guys hear, by the way? ABBA's releasing five new songs. Really? The band. They announced wow. it last week. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Did you see? I'm assuming you both have watched Will Ferrell and uh, Rachel McAdams' newest film, Eurovision. I saw it. The Fire Saga. I saw it. And? I have a problem with Will Ferrell. I always have had that. Watching Will Ferrell for me is like watching Jim Carrey or Robin Williams, where I find the comedy force so forced and so one-dimensional sometimes that I just resent it. I just, I just don't think that they're doing their. I just don't think they act enough. Um, I find with Jim Carrey as well sometimes he can just be so one-dimensional for me. And Will, Will Ferrell, there's always a smugness about him that just bothers me. I liked him in Stranger Than Fiction, but otherwise, like, I, I'll take or leave yeah. him. I'm, I, I don't uh, particularly love him. So you didn't see it, Riley? I did. Oh, you did? Okay. Because yeah. that, it's kind of, the contest is cool. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a funny Sunday afternoon movie. It doesn't require too much. It reminds me of, you know, um, what's that movie with Sandra Bullock where she has to go to a beauty contest? It's that kind of movie. Oh, Miss Congeniality? Yeah, it's just a simple little, you know, ha-ha, la-la-la. I, I just, uh, it, and I bring that up only because of ABBA at the very beginning of the movie plays such a big part in that. Uh, comedy and me are strange bedfellows. And I only like the weirdest stuff, like the comedy getting on, which Bonnie knows. I thought was, that was my, like stuff like Seinfeld is unwatchable for me. I cannot watch it. 
Well, that must have made you so angry when they brought that well, up. Well, it doesn't matter. It? It's your taste. But like Big Bang Theory, those kind of shows, like, you know, I, I, I can't watch them. I just, they're unwatchable for me. Look at you. So you're trying to tell me that Family Matters Urkel <laughs> is not your favorite character? <laughs> he got hot. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, he got all buff and shit. It was all put on. Yeah. That's all. He was a kid. Good for him. All right. Let's get back to this story. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On the 31st of January, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached surplus food and equipment that they would that would be used for the trip back, which is a common practice, of course, when you're planning a, a trip where you're going out and coming back, you you leave stuff for yourself along the way in case there's a problem. And also, so you don't have to carry that extra weight. That is so smart. Right. That's why they were level two. That's why they were level two, almost level three. The following day, February 1st, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they plan to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side, but because of worsening weather conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west up towards the top of a mountain called Colat Sackle. Now, this is an interesting little tidbit. The Mansi, which are the indigenous people of this area, the name they have for that mountain is the Mountain of the Dead. And that doesn't necessarily figure, I don't think it necessarily figures into the story, but it is a little interesting side note that this is a revered place by the Mansi people. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than move 1.5 or about a mile downhill to a forested area that would have offered some shelter from the bad weather. So if you can if you can picture it, they're on an exposed snow-covered slope. Below them is a forest, a, a mostly a, like an evergreen pine forest that would have been perfect to camp out in, as it would have provided protection from the wind, the snow. If there's an avalanche, you would have some protection there as well. Yudin, so he's the the guy with all the health problems who had to back out. He postulates that Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude that they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. Because that again, remember that this was a opportunity to continue to learn and sort of push themselves, try different things out as they're trying to build up their expertise. That's the last that we know of what happened to them for sure. We know that they made a mistake they've instead of going through this gap between two mountains they're now climbing one of the the peaks before leaving dietlov had agreed he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to vishai it was expected that this would happen no later than the 12th of february but dietlov had told yudin before he departed from the group that he expected it to be longer again taking into consideration bad weather things happen if we're not back on the 12th, don't worry about it. We're, we're coming. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction as delays were expected as a result of some of his comments and just knowledge of what they were trying to do. However, on the 20th of February, the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army became involved with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation. 
Almost a week later, on the 26th of February, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Colet Sackle. So, and I say tent, they had one large tent that they were all staying in. So this isn't a series of small little tents that you maybe would see people sleeping in now when they try to trek Everest. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sherevin, the student who found the tent, said the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Mm. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks or a single shoe or were even barefoot could be followed leading down towards the edge of the nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass. And that was about, again, just under, I think about a little less than a mile. So they start following these the tracks left by these people. But after about 500 meters, or about 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. The searchers continue sort of in the direction, though, that these footsteps had been leading towards, which is leading towards the forest edge. And they find under a large pine tree the visible remains of a small fire. There they discovered the first two bodies, those of Krivoshenko and Doroshenko, shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, perhaps the camp. Between the pine and the camp, searchers found three more corpses, Dietilov, Komogorova, and Slobodin, who seemed to have died in poses, suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. So you can kind of imagine what that must have looked like and and how painful that must have been, freezing to death, possibly. They were found separately at distances of 300, 480, and 630 meters. So quite a bit of gap between the three of them. They didn't all die together. Some got quite close, actually, to, uh, well, got quite far, I should say, from the tree. Finding the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on the 4th of May under four meters or about 15-ish feet of snow in a ravine 75 meters further into the woods from the pine tree. Three of those four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that those who had died first had their clothes relinquished to the others. Dubinia was wearing Kravashenko's burned, torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. So they find all these bodies, and there's a lot of pressure for an investigation into what happened to them. So a legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was eventually concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be a fatal wound. An examination of the four bodies that were found in May in that ravine shifted the narrative as to what had occurred during the incident. Three of the ski hikers had fatal injuries. Thibaut Brignol had major skull damage, and both Dubinia and Zolotaryov had major chest fractures. According to Boris Vosrosteny, one of the doctors, and actually the lead doctor on the case, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high comparable to the force of a car crash. 
Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures, as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. All four bodies found at the bottom of the creek in a running stream of water had soft tissue damage to their head and face. For example, Dubinia was missing, and folks, this is where if this is pretty gruesome. So, if you want to check out for the next minute, please do. Uh, Dubinia was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissues and a fragment of skull bone, while Zolotaryov had his eyeballs missing and Kolvatov had his eyebrows missing as well. Vosrov Denny judged that the the uh, the doctor judged that these injuries happened post-mortem due to the location of the bodies in the stream and that actually does make sense. If animals found them or fish they would, that's exactly what they would eat. So that doesn't necessarily mean foul play. It doesn't mean that they were part of some weird experiment or ritual. There is a very plausible natural explanation for why they look that way. Except the eyebrows. That's weird. Why a part of the skull? Why, why is one missing more than the others? You know what I mean? Why is it kind of more uniform? Mm-hmm. And if it was a wild animal, wouldn't it be more ravaged? But again, still possible. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Mansi people, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who are reindeer herders local to the area, had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands. Several Mansi were interrogated, but the investigation indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support this hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible, and they showed no sign of hand-to-hand struggle. Were the Mansi known for that? Like, were they that vicious about trespassers? No, they're actually known to be very peaceful people. Okay, cool. Yeah. Although the temperature was very low, around minus 25 to minus 30 degrees Celsius or minus 20 Fahrenheit. And you notice I'm, what I'm doing here, Riley? I'm speaking to all our imperial and metric listeners. I want everyone to feel included and happy. You're all about inclusivity. Do I get a badge for this, Bonnie? Absolutely. Yay! All right. So the temperature was really low. It's very cold. And there's a storm blowing. So even though that that's happening, the dead were only partially dressed. Some of them had only one shoe, while others had no shoes at all, as has already been mentioned. Kind of weird. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. So they all die around the same time. Traces from the camp show that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. This is weird. High levels of radiation were found on one of the victims' clothing. Ooh. And only on one. But they're in university, right? What program was he in? Nothing to do with radiology. Oh, okay. Or the bomb. Hey, you just opened up a new possible theory. To dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansi people, uh, Voris Denied stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being. And he is quoted as saying, because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Mm. Right? So no, 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 no cuts, lacerations, bruising, except for that soft tissue damage to the people in the ravine. At the time, the verdict was that the group members had all died because of a compelling natural force. The inquest officially ceased in May of 59. 
as a result of the absence of a guilty party, the files were sent to a secret archive. Now, that's also not super weird. Again, we're dealing with Soviet Russia, and they like to control everything. So even sometimes seemingly mundane things would be kept secret. In 1997, it was revealed that the negatives from Krivoshenko's camera were kept in the private archive of one of the investigators, Lev Ivanov. The film material was donated by Ivanov's daughter to the Dyatlov Foundation, which is a group that is bent on figuring out what on earth happened. The diaries of the hiking party fell into Russia's public domain in 2009. On the 12th of April, 2018, the remains of Zolotarov were exhumed. This is, remember, this is the guy that uh, I had mentioned earlier that sort of popped into the, yeah. yeah. So the remains of Zolotarov were exhumed upon the initiative of journalists of the Russian tabloid newspaper, Komsomolovskaya Pravda. And that's how you have to say that. You have to say it with that angry Russian voice, yeah. Contradictory results were obtained. One of the experts stated that the character of the injuries resembled a person knocked down by a car, and the DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. In addition, it turned out that the name Semyon Zolotarov was not on the list of buried at the at the cemetery with the with the rest. Nevertheless, the re- the reconstruction of the face from the exhumed skull agreed with the post-war photographs of Zolotarov, although journalists expressed sus- uh, suspicions that another person was hiding under Zolotarov's name after World War II. Oh my God! So we might be dealing with like a Russian agent. Wow. A Soviet agent. He took on this assumed name, but his DNA does not match with the actual family. Right. And he was on and he at the last minute is put on to the 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 list of hikers. Weird, eh? Well, it's fabulous. Another group of hikers were about fifty kilometers or thirty miles south of the incident, reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident, towards where they were. Similar spheres were observed in Ivdel and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March of 59 by various independent witnesses, including the meteorology service and the military. Wow, so now the sort of UFO element comes into it. Perhaps. However, these sightings were not noted in the initial investigation in 1959, and these various independent witnesses only came forward years later. Anatoly Gushin summarized in his research book, The Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives. He, he speculated on the theory of a Soviet secret weapon experiment that these guys fumbled upon. Its publication led to public discussion and stimulated by interest in the paranormal. Indeed, many of those who had remained silent for 30 years reported new facts about the accident. One of them was former police officer Lev Ivanov, who led the the official inquest in 59. Yeah, I remember you mentioned him earlier. Yeah. In 1990, he published an article that that included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated that after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss this 
claim. Typical Soviet Union. And now you know why Rocky had to beat Dragov or Dragunov in Rocky Four. He had to beat him. They were the evil empire. Yes, it's Drago. And I always picture guys in like big coats and hats talking with briefcases outside in the winter. I always picture them in big coats, hats with briefcases in saunas. Again, your, your, your fantasy life is bleeding into this podcast. I think the listeners want to know more about my fantasy life. All right, and then lastly, the Dietilov Foundation, which I mentioned earlier, was founded in 1999 at Yekaterinburg, which is, again, close to where the expedition was, uh, with the help of the Rural State Technical University and led by a gentleman named Yuri Kunsevich. The foundation's stated aim is to continue investigation on the case and to maintain uh, the Dietilov Museum to preserve the memory of the dead hikers. So that is the story of what happened. Let's get to the theories. I hope I hope the Yeti is in there or something like that. So let's start with the Yeti. So yes, there's a theory that a Yeti was responsible for the attack. Did you know that there's a kid's character called Betty the Yeti? No, I didn't know that. So let's say a Yeti attacks the tent. Wouldn't the tent be demolished? Would yeah. the rips be from the outside in? Wouldn't there be perhaps uh, physical damage to the bodies, right? Like, so some people, well, the force of the injuries, maybe only a Yeti could perform. But again, they'd be bruised, bloodied, lacerated, cut. But you know that Yetis are known to love eyebrows. They're considered a delicacy. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Can I tell you what I think one of the most horrifying bugs on the planet is? House centipedes, I think they are. Yeah, millipedes, centipedes. They are the worst, and they bite, eh? And if they've got, if they're big enough, they can break your skin. And apparently, their sting is about the same pain level as a bee. Really? Yes. And they hunt spiders. That's how uber these guys are. They're nasty pieces of work. They're the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my house. They also will run at you not away from you because that's part of their defense is aggression. So they'll go after you to bite you or to, or hide on you. And that's how they'll, oh, I don't even want to talk about them. It's gross. Oh, I hate them. I hate them. So Yeti, I don't think Yeti is a possible explanation. Avalanche. That's what the government is saying now that it, what it was on uh, July 11th, 2020, Andre Kuryakov, deputy head of the Ural's Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office. Get all that? That's like something you would say before a show, like to warm up your mouth. The lips, the teeth, the tip of the tongue. Ural's Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office. You'd say it in Russian. So they just announced uh, the avalanche as the official cause of death for the entire group. That's just this year. Author Benjamin Radford suggests... Uh, the avalanche is the most plausible explanation as well. And this is a quote from Mr. Radford that the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow. 
They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead but at any rate the group of four whose bodies was most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four meters or 13 feet of snow more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described dubina's tongue was likely removed by scavengers and ordinary predation evidence contradicting the avalanche theory includes the following the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. Mm. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow. And had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. And it wasn't. There were the broken branches in that tree they were camping under, but no other trees were damaged. Okay. And the people in the ravine were further away from the tree line than the ones, you know, who the, the initial bodies they found. So if an avalanche had actually happened, there's no evidence of okay. it. it. There's snow, but that snow could have fallen in just regular old snowfall, not necessarily an avalanche. Over 100 expeditions to the region were held since the incident, and none of them have ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes in and cornices were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions. This is not an area prone to avalanches. Okay. An analysis of the terrain and the slope shows that even if there could have been a very uh, specific avalanche that found its way around, its path would have gone past the tent. It had collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. Dyatlov was an experienced skier, and the much older Zolotaryov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. Okay. So even though they decided not to go to the forest again, these are these are the guys that would train military. You know, not saying that they did, but. They were ex they were experts. They were grade two. They were about to become a grade three. They knew the way around mountaineering. They knew what to do. Yeah. That would be one of the basic things that you would think about when you're making your camp. Is this a safe place for a camp? It's one on one. Footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people, running in a panic from either real or imagined danger. All the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace. What? Oh. And that would be based, I'm assuming, on how the foot's falling in the snow and also the distance between the feet, right, as they're walking. So another possible explanation was bad weather. 
a review of the 1959 investigations evidence completed in 2015 through 2019 by experienced investigators from the Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation on request of the families confirmed the avalanche with several important details added. First of all, the ICRF investigators one of them being an experienced alpinist, confirmed that the weather on the night of the tragedy was very harsh, with wind speeds up to hurricane force, 20 to 30 meters per second, or about 67 miles per hour. A snowstorm and temperatures reaching minus 40 degrees. So this is bad. And this is sort of playing into the hurricane possible hurricane uh, explanation. These factors weren't considered by the 1959 investigators who arrived at the scene of the accident three weeks later when the weather had much improved and any remains of the snow slide settled down and had been covered with fresh snowfall. The harsh weather at the same time played a critical role in the events of the tragic night, which has been reconstructed as follows. On February 1st, the group arrives at the Kolitsakal Mountain and erects a large nine-person tent and on an open slope without any natural barriers such as forests. On the day and a few preceding days, a heavy snowfall continued with strong wind and frost. The group, traversing through the slope and digging in the tent into the snow, weakened the snow base. During the night, the snowfield above the tent starts to slide down slowly under the weight of the new snow, gradually pushing on the tent fabric, starting from the entrance. The group wakes up and starts evacuation in panic, with only some able to put on warm clothes. Since the entrance was blocked, the group escapes through a hole cut in the tent fabric and descends the slope to find a place perceived as safe from the avalanche only 1,500 meters down at the forest border. Due to some of the members having very incomplete clothes, the group splits. Two of the group, only in their underwear and pajamas, were found under the tree uh, and and were the first confirmed to have died from hypothermia. The three hikers, Dyatlov and others, they're perhaps going back up to their campsite to try and retrieve clothes, but then also die from the extreme cold. The four remaining, equipped with warmer clothes and footwear, were trying to find or perhaps build a better camping place in the forest, which would explain why they were separated from the group, but then they too succumb from the cold and die uh, from hypothermia. According to ICRF investigators, the factors contributing to the tragedy were extremely bad weather and a lack of experience of the group leader in such conditions, which led to the selection of a dangerous camping place. And I'm just going to stop there and say bullshit. I cry bullshit on that. I think a grade one, I would know that. I would know that. And when you were describing that, you said that this big sort of wall of snow slowly went down towards the tent. But you said the footprints were, weren't were running. That's right. They analyzed the foot. So that doesn't make sense. If the, It does not make if sense. If there was something that was dangerous, they would be, they'd be running. Yeah, that's right. So they're saying that there was a snow slide, that it wasn't a major. It, 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 it gave them a scare, forced them to panic and flee the tent. Then they make another mistake and they split up into two different groups. Again, the work of, you know, beginner survivalist hikers. They, they basically are saying that, you know, the weather was the, the reason, but really was negligence on the part of diet law that caused the death of these people and that the investigators in 59 hadn't done their job properly. I definitely think bad weather probably played a role in their death, but it's just it, there's too many weird counter evidence. There's too much weird counter evidence to just say, yep, it was an avalanche. Yep, it was bad weather. They were experienced hikers 
it just doesn't make sense. Can I ask you a question? Um, mm-hmm. I know the story pretty well. Isn't there something about them being in weird poses or the way that they were physically found? Isn't there something about that? Or am I? Well, I think what you're referring to is Dyatlov and the two others. Is that what you're referring to? That they, sort of they were in like in motion type poses? Yeah. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. But they think that was probably because they were in the process of hiking back up to the tent. Okay. I didn't, in my research, I didn't see anything about them being put in weird positions like any of the others. Okay. Yeah. That doesn't mean it, it didn't. It just means that I'm extremely lazy with my research. I blame my uh, 12-year-old son for not doing good enough research. The, another explanation, a nat- natural explanation, is that it was a, something called a catabatic wind. So that's a, a huge wind that sort of flows off the top of a mountain and can create hurricane force winds as it comes down a mountain. So in 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition was made to the site. And after investigations, they proposed that a violent catabatic wind was the likely explanation for the incident. Catabatic winds are somewhat rare events and can be extremely violent, as you could imagine. They were implicated in a 1978 case at Anaris Mountain in Sweden where eight hikers were killed and one was seriously injured in the aftermath of one of these winds. And the topography of these locations were very similar. A sudden catabatic wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent and the most rational course of action would be for the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter among the tree line. There was also a torch left turned on top of the tent, possibly left there intentionally so the hikers could find their way back to the tent once the wind subsided. The expedition proposed that the group of hikers constructed two bivouac shelters, one of which collapsed, leaving four of the hikers buried with the violent injuries observed. Possible. Maybe. Here's the other thing. That through all these that I've just mentioned, wouldn't you take the extra few seconds, if not to put on your clothes, but to grab your clothes? Absolutely. Here's the other piece. I've done winter camping. You're never in just your underwear. You wear pajamas at the very least. The time that I went, I wore, a, a, like I had my sleep, a winter sleeping bag, but um, I was still wearing a long sleeve shirt and pants and socks, heavy socks. Wouldn't you take the extra second to grab at the very least your boots? Maybe they were having sexy time. You know that that is also one of the other possible theories that there was like some weird romantic tryst and they fought and, but again, no blunt force to the body. So it's kind of been ruled out, but that actually was... One idea postulated that there was some weird romantic stuff happening. Sexy time in the tent. Sexy time in the tent. You know that uh, a catabatic wind is a part of the Kama Sutra. So who knows? Maybe it wasn't that kind of catabatic wind. Catabatic wind. I love saying it. Catabatic. Here's another interesting one. And this one's kind of, I like this one. It's, a, it's, it's neat. It's a bit out there, but it's neat. So another hypothesis that was popularized by a person named Donnie Icar in his book, Dead Mountain, uh, is that wind going around the mountain uh, created something called a Karman Vortex Street, which can produce infrared sound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. So according to Icar's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of uh, the mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Icar claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. 
By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasounds, uh, infrasounds path and would have regained their composure, but in the darkness would be unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the result of their stumbling over the ledge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. What do you think of that one? That sounds stupid. I, it's interesting. It's interesting, but it's fucking way out there. And here's the issue, too, I have with it. So they're, he's claiming that they're lost in the dark. Wouldn't you just follow your footsteps? You're in mm-hmm. snow. And why hasn't the military found a way to reproduce that sound? Well, maybe they have. But there's that sh- there's that thing in Cuba, right, where there, there's a... They are experimenting with sound. Exactly. The, the weird sound. Yeah. So the general strokes of it is that uh, American embassy or consulate officials in Cuba. It was American, right, Bonnie, I think? Yeah, it was the Havana Syndrome, uh, and I, uh, it was the Americans. I believe the Canadians said something about it too. But And they're claiming that uh, they, they were using sound as a weapon. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, a set of medical signs and symptoms experienced by United States and Canadian embassy staff in Cuba. Beginning in August 2017, reports surfaced that American and Canadian diplomatic personnel in Cuba had suffered a variety of health problems dating back to 2016. And uh, they said that uh, the U.S. government accused Cuba of perpetrating unspecified attacks causing these symptoms. And they felt that it was caused by some kind of audio that was, uh, you know, affecting their, their, their medical conditions and their, and their health and their systems. Yeah. Do you know, I've experienced that very same thing when confronted with a child crying in a restaurant. Wow. What did you do? I left. Were you wearing clothes? Well, you know me. It's 50-50 chance. What about the lederhosen? I couldn't fit in those anymore. I put on some weight. I'm in my 50s now. I just look at a pizza and I gain two pounds. Let's get back because this next explanation, I this is the one I, just my gut tells me that it this might cover it. That military tests were responsible for the death of these hikers. Speculation exists that the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. This theory alleges that the hikers, woken by loud explosions, fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to return for their supplies. After some members froze to death, attempting to endure the bombardment, others commandeered their clothing only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. There are indeed records of a parachute mine of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Parachute mines, for those of you who don't know, detonate while still in the air rather upon striking the Earth's surface and produce signature injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with comparably less external trauma. It, like, come on. These things were, they. we know that they were being dropped in the area and the way they injure is identical to the way some of the injuries found on, on the nine. I like this one. Yes. The theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers and allegedly photographed by them, potentially military aircraft or descending parachute mines. This theory, among others, uses scavenging animals to explain Dubina's injuries. And again, I agree with that. I don't, I think that's, that makes sense. Some speculate the bodies were unnaturally manipulated due to 
characteristic liver mortis markings discovered during an autopsy as well as burns to hair and skin. Photographs of the tent allegedly show that it was erected incorrectly, something the experienced hikers were unlikely to have done. It's perhaps the military had got to these bodies before they officially got to the bodies. They took the eyebrows. They took them. Well, no, but remember they say that, that that's possible that it, it that could have been natural. No, somebody in someone's attic somewhere in, in, in Russia, oh, there's geez. this little metal box, you open it up and there's eyebrows. So a similar theory alleges the testing of radiological weapons and is partly based on the discovery of the radioactivity on some of the clothing, as well as the bodies being described uh, described by relatives as having, and this is another interesting part that I haven't brought up, uh, but having an orange skin and gray hair. Oh. Yeah. That would explain number 45. He's actually a, a radioactive monster. Orange skin and gray hair. Yeah. That's like, that's like every retiree in Florida. Well, they get a lot of sun. They do. So radioactive dispersal would have affected all of the hikers and equipment instead of just some of it. And the skin and hair discoloration can be explained by a natural process of mummification after three months of exposure to the colds and winds. There was another report of a little boy saying who saw the bodies saying that their skin was really brown. And that would also be sort of explained by exposure to the elements, mummification, Mm -hmm. that type Mm -hmm. of thing. Furthermore, the initial suppression of files regarding the group's disappearance by Soviet authorities is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up, but the concealment of information regarding domestic incidents was standard procedure in the USSR and therefore far from peculiar, as mentioned before. Oh, no, no way. The Soviet Union involved in a cover-up? Back then? That's, that's, that's outrageous. They're the most transparent, friendly government ever. And they they also say, well, everything was released in the 1980s, but was it? That's like, yeah, okay, they say they released it, but did they? Again, in the 1980s, and 1980s, you're still dealing with a far more reformed Soviet Union, but still the Soviet Union. Like I mentioned, it's even now Russia, like I, I wouldn't trust the information that you're getting from that government. And they poison people I guess, routinely. I guess we're not going to Russia to do this podcast. Nope. Here's another, another one. Uh, theory paradoxical undressing so the international science times posited that the hikers deaths was caused by hypothermia which can induce a behavior known as paradoxical undressing in which hypothermic subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth it is undisputed that six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia however others in the group appeared to have acquired additional clothing from those who had already died which suggests that they were of a sound enough mind to try to add layers. So that's possible, but that doesn't explain why they had hypothermia. They they had all their supplies. They were well-equipped. Why did they start to experience hypothermia in their tent? I'm sold on the air mines. I'm down with the air mines. I, I, I don't disagree. Keith McCloskey, who has researched the incident for many years and has appeared in several TV documentaries, he traveled uh, to the area in 2015 uh, with someone from the Dietlaw Foundation, and uh, he noted the following. There were wide discrepancies in distances quoted between the two possible locations of the, uh, the snow shelter, uh, where Dubinia, Kolvatov, and Zolotarov and Thibault Brignol were found. One location was approximately 80 to 100 meters from the pine tree where the bodies of Doroshenko and Kravoshenko were found, and the other suggested location was so close to the tree that anyone in the snow shelter could have spoken to those at the tree without raising their voices to be heard. The second location also has a rock in the stream where Dominia's body was found and is the more likely location of the two. 
However, the second suggested location of the two has a topography that is closer to the photos taken at the time of the search in 1959. The location of the tent near the ridge was found to be too close to the spur of the ridge for any significant buildup of snow to cause an avalanche, which cements that theory from before this was not an avalanche zone. Furthermore, the prevailing wind blowing over the ridge had the effect of blowing snow away from the edge of the ridge on the side where the tent was. Ah, Yeah, this further reduced any buildup of snow to cause an avalanche. This aspect of the lack of snow on the top and near the top of the ridge was pointed out by Sergei Sogren in 2010. And I'll say this, Russians are very smart people, highly educated at the level that this would have been investigated at, certainly even in 2019. This is all information that they would have had readily available to them. They would have known this. They know that this is not an avalanche area. Why are they insisting on that? Well, they manipulate information, right? I mean, isn't that kind of what they're known for? McCloskey also noted Lev Ivanov's boss, Evgeny Okashev, was still alive in 2015 and had given an interview to former Kemerov prosecutor Leonid Proshkin, in which Okashev stated that he was arranging another trip to the past to fully investigate the strange deaths of the last four bodies when Deputy Prosecutor General Urakov, get all that, arrived from Moscow and ordered the case shut down. This is 2015. Uh-huh. Again. Yeah. yeah. Akashev also stated in his interview with Leonid Prushkin that Kleinov, head of the Sverdlov prosecutor's office, was present at the first postmortems in the morgue and spent three days there, something Akashev regarded as highly unusual and the only time in his entire working experience that that had ever happened, that he sat there during the uh, autopsies. Donnie Icar, who I mentioned earlier, he sort of evaluated some other theories that he deemed unlikely uh, and have been discredited. And again, we talked about this, that they were attacked by Mansi or other local tribesmen. Again, the blunt force, they have no history of doing that to people. Uh, that they were attacked and chased by animal wildlife. I'll include a Yeti in that. Uh, there were no animal tracks. And the group would... I don't think would have abandoned the relative security of the tent if it was an animal. They would have maybe stood there. I think they would have stood their ground and maybe fought and used the implements they had at their disposal there. That's it. I know I didn't mention every possible theory, and there's some that are I I would argue are out there, and I didn't bring them up because I don't. There's not a lot of evidence to suggest, for example, that there was UFOs. I think the glowing orbs could absolutely be explained by those mines, the air mines have my 100% vote. And even more so when you mentioned that somebody was at the autopsy for three hours and also when- Three days. Three days. Three days. days. And and when you also um, mentioned that somebody came and shut the investigation down, I think it was a military accident. Multiple times. It was shut down initially in 59 when they started mentioning about these photographs and the orbs, they shut it down. And then again in 2015. Now, I do think that the military were most likely involved. I don't know, though, that if it was even those parachute mines. Why would they care in 2015 about parachute mines? They just don't like to be fallible, right? That's the thing about the Soviet. They don't like to be fallible for anything. Well, right. So either it, could it be technology that we still don't know about? Maybe. Could it be, though, more of a human right piece and not wanting to be liable? Is it possible that those hikers were lured out there? Remember, this was a government-sanctioned trip. 
the government knew where they were going. And those extra people who were those extra well, who people. Who was that guy that who it wasn't who he said he was, right? Right. Who was he? And maybe he was a sacrificial lamb. He might he himself might not have have known, but maybe his job was to ensure that they were in a certain area at a certain time. Uh, and then that so they could experiment perhaps on okay, well, let's see what actually happens when we drop these things on people. Yeah. Right? I, I'm not saying that that's what it is, but possible. Okay, well, I vote something militaristic. The reason I'm leaning towards the mines is the percussive, some of the percussive injuries, like their chests being broken and stuff, but no penetration of the, you know, you know of their chests. I think, I think that makes me believe it's probably the mines. Yeah, and, 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 and most likely. And the shapes that people saw in the sky could be mines being dropped. The mines to do make sense. I think that that 2015 and 2020 cover continued cover up to me say that there's perhaps the the fact that the mines were dropped on these people at all. It's not the technology; it was the act that they're trying to to cover up. Agreed. Agreed. That's where my um, that's where I put my chips. Bonnie, did you have something you wanted to say? Well, I just wanted to say that uh, it was Karina Pyler, I hope I pronounced that correctly, who had messaged us with suggesting with a suggestion of doing this topic. Um, Dan already had it on his radar. Uh, so hopefully, uh, Chris, Karina, you're, uh, you're, you're listening still and, and enjoyed the topic. And if anyone does have any topics they would like Riley or Dan to explore, message us on Facebook, send us a tweet, post on the, on the Facebook page, and we will uh, put it in our uh, repertoire. And uh, Karina, you've been entered, you've been entered into a raffle. Uh, for um, Kraft Singles Cheese. Uh, we'll be doing that raffle later in the year. And if uh, you're the winner, uh, you will be uh, the lucky new recipient of a pack of cheese delivered through the mail. It's called American cheese. It is. We call it processed cheese, but it's called American cheese in America. I remember Willie Loman talking about that in Death of a Salesman. Exactly. We're so cultured. Are we done, Dan? No, I've got 72 more theories that I want to take you through. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is it. That's it. Uh, folks, look, that was our 10th episode, and uh, we're, we'll wrap it up here. I just want to say we beat the stats and one other thing. You look very fetching in that headband. It's actually a good look I, I've taken a screenshot of the today's, um, right. today's podcast recording, which we can share, so everyone can appreciate your headband. It's, a really, it's honestly a really no, good look it for does. you. It looks great. I bought a pack of uh, 12 headbands on Amazon for $20. I've got long hair now, and um, this is one way of uh, dealing with it. Well, my hair is terrible. I haven't had it cut in like six months. Well, and I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah. Uh, it's okay. I know it looks terrible. <laughs> that looks fine. Hey, so just wanted to say that this th this is our 10th episode. We're, we're just getting started, I think it's fair to say. Would you, would you not agree, guys? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, we, we really enjoy... Uh, the interaction that you have had with us as well. So if you have comments or questions, if there's future episodes that you'd like to see us cover, don't hesitate to uh, to contact us. Be like Karina and, uh, and, and uh, engage with us. The first 10 have been a blast and we can't wait for the next 720. Amen, brother. All right. Goodbye, everybody. And good luck. Drove up to my Chevy and the clown played the guitar and the robot said hum. How bizarre.